Well, good morning, Red Hills Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. So good to see you, everyone online. We welcome you. We're glad that you're with us. Can we give it up for everyone watching online? Let them hear you. All right. I'm excited for tribes, especially Tony's Bacon Brotherhood in the Bible. That was great. I might join that one. Uh, but Brett's tribe, he said young dads. What qualifies as a young dad? What age? 75. Okay. All right, I like it. Hey, sign up for a tribe. It's going to be great. Uh, listen, a lot of you might come here because you, you, someone invited you uh, or uh, you like the worship. But what will keep you at a church is the community. And the community is so important. So sign up for a tribe. It's a short series of tribes. I think it's four or five weeks that anyone can commit to four or five weeks of giving your time to Jesus and to other people. Uh, I want, before I jump into my message, I want to remind you that next week is Easter. And uh, we're excited for our Easter gatherings. We're doing four of them. Uh, we're going to do a Saturday night at 6.30, a Sunday morning at uh, 9 and 10.30, and then a 12 p.m. Uh, Easter gathering. So I encourage you to do two things. Number one, uh, invite somebody, bring somebody. A great opportunity to bring your mom, to bring your dad, to bring your son or daughter, your family, your friends, uh, to come to Easter, to experience what church is like, uh, what we do at Easter is we do just a normal gathering. We just preach the gospel. We give people an invitation. So we encourage you uh, to do that. The second thing is this. Would you let us know that you're coming? Uh, you can reserve your seat online if you go to our website. Uh, just let us know uh, how many people are in your party. You don't have to put everyone's name, uh, but it helps us plan and prepare and uh, when we get to capacity. But if you don't sign up, it's okay. Come anyway. We'll make sure that we find room for you. Well, this morning we're going to jump into the second part of the series, Invisible Prison, Invisible Prisons. You see, in the Bible, we are going through the prison narratives of Scripture, and this is what I have discovered, that it is in the prison places of Scripture that you see the power of God move in people's lives, uh, and you see the plan of God being moved forward. It's interesting because the prison places in Scripture have been used by evil people to put away the faithful people of God. They've been used as a tool of the enemy to try to thwart God's plan. And what actually is, is attempted to, by the enemy to be used to stop God's plan actually becomes part of his plan. And sometimes God's most powerful moments and the biggest miracles you see are in the prison places of uh, life. And so we all face invisible prisons in our own life. And I call them invisible because none of you are being in prison for your faith, but there are invisible prisons that, that you experience that keep you trapped and keep you stuck and keep you locked up. It might be your emotions. It might be your circumstances. It might be your uh, uh, addictions or uh, bad habits, but things that keep you bound up. And the point of this series is that God wants to live, you to live in a life of freedom. Amen? God wants you to experience a life of freedom. In fact, Jesus came, his first sermon was all about freedom. And he wants you and I to live in freedom. So today I want to talk about the Joseph narrative. And the title of my sermon is The Pit. The Pit. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. The Joseph narrative is the longest story in the book of Genesis. 
It goes from chapter 37 all the way to the end of chapter 50. And what we see in this narrative is the up and down uh, life of Joseph. And we see uh, that he gets persecuted and imprisoned for following the will of God and the plan of God. So I'm going to read uh, in uh, verse uh, chapter uh, 37, verse 2 through 11, and we're going to jump down to verse 17. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. So he wasn't a young dad, was he? So Israel, Jacob couldn't even go to Brett's tribe. When his brothers saw that their father loved them more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and we told it to his brothers. They hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, as his, brothers his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph does what he always does throughout the scripture is he listens and obeys God. Now we might look at the life of Joseph at least this action in the very beginning of his life, he's 17. He tells his brothers that he's going to bow down to him. We might think it's unwise for him to tell his brothers such things. All right. How many of you have a younger sibling? All right. What if they came to you and told you that one day you're going to worship me? All right. <laughs> one day you're going to bow down to me. You might do the same thing that his brothers do. And here's what's interesting. The moment that Joseph begins to follow the will and the plan of God is the moment his life becomes to get unraveled. Do you find that interesting? That the moment he begins to tell his brothers about his dream is the moment that his life gets worse. Sometimes in our faith, we think that following the plan of God is going to lead to the easy road. One thing that I have tried to convince you <laughs> is that oftentimes the right road with God is not the easy road. It's not the easy road. It is the good road. It is the right road, but it is not the easy road. And oftentimes, even in our own life, when we begin to passionately pursue the things of God and what he, has he, what he has in our life, all of a sudden resistance comes in. Have you ever experienced that? Listen, I live a life of faith of always running towards what God has for me. It's the nature of God's calling on my life and there is resistance every step of the way. Every time God calls me to do something, there is a resistance that tries to stop what God wants to do in my life. And I think Joseph is experiencing this. And this is when his 
life unravels. It's when he faces the toughest battles of his life, when everything you believe in or you trust it in is thrown into question. Let's continue the story. I want to jump down to verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Joseph is in the pit. He's in a bone dry pit, which means this. They're in the dry season in the desert, all right? They're in the, uh, the dry season uh, in, the, in the middle of the desert. There is no water. And so his life in his mind and what he's experiencing is over. He's in the pit. There's no water. There's no way to stay alive. And many of you know the next part of the story is that he gets sold into slavery. So Joseph's life goes from worse to worser, all right? It does not get better for a very long time. There's something interesting about Hebrew narrative, right? The stories written in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, in, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is Hebrew narrative primarily talks about facts, not feelings, all right? And if you think about it, it makes sense. Uh, Hebrew is a very, one of the first languages, a very primitive language. Uh, it, you know, they didn't have paper and a pen. So to write scripture, what God had inspired people to write, uh, uh, the authors would write as few words as possible to get the message of cross. And so narrative consisted of facts, not feelings. But I want to talk about feelings today. Because the reality is Joseph is human just like you and I. And he was subjected to the feelings that you and I would face. I imagine Joseph feeling in the pit, uh, being in a place of despair. If your brother stripped you and threw you in a bone-dry cistern, how would you feel, right? There might be frustration. There might be anger. There might be fear. There might be depression. There might be anxiety, you see, the pit for us, for Americans, has long been used as a state of being sad or depressed or frustrated. I am in the pit, and I think Joseph was in the pit. You see, today I want to talk about a very important topic that we don't often talk about in church. I want to talk about the feelings, not the facts. <laughs> I want to talk about the emotions that we experience when you and I experience the pit. And oftentimes, like Joseph, when we follow God, we experience moments in the pit. We experience moments in, eventually he goes to prison, in the invisible prisons of your life. Even though you're following Jesus and walking with Jesus, there are moments through your life that you experience feelings so deep and profound, sometimes you don't know what to do with them. And so today... I want to talk about two things in particular. I want to talk about anxiety and depression. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Aaron, why would you talk about mental health in church? Well, let me tell you two reasons. Number one is that several biblical characters experienced depression and anxiety. All right. Elijah, when he was running from Jezebel out in the desert, wanted to kill himself. He wanted to end his life. This was after perhaps the greatest miracle he ever saw, where, where he doused uh, this, this wood with water and, and, and God lit it on fire and 450 prophets of Baal died. I mean, this, you're talking about profound miracles. And after this, Jezebel says, I'm after you, and he goes and he wants to die in the desert. Jonah lived through three days in the belly of a fish, in the belly of a whale. All right, Jesus experienced anxiety. What are you talking about? In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he was sweating blood. You sweat blood when you experience the most extreme anxiety you ever have. This is why Jesus said, Lord, would you take this cup from me? Not my will be done. Let your will be done. The first reason is, Many characters in the Bible have faced it. So some of you might also be asking, well, why doesn't the Bible talk about it? Well, it does. The Bible just doesn't use the same language that we use. You understand when we talk about anxiety, depression, or mental health, they are modern terms used to describe something that humans have always experienced. Are you with me? And so it does. It actually does. The second reason is this, is that many Americans experience it. Stats tell us this, that 25% of adults in the United States experience anxiety, depression, or a combination of both. 25%. It says this, that 17% of adolescents, 13 to 19, experience depression, and 37% experience anxiety. So one in four adults experience anxiety or depression. One in three adolescents experience anxiety or depression. To not talk about it might be unwise for me if one in three or one in four of you sitting in this room might experience anxiety or depression throughout your life. By the way, these stats, I could not find any current stats, these stats happened before the pandemic. And we all know the isolation that people have experienced over the last two years has led to even more. So my goal today is to give you a pastoral perspective of anxiety and depression. I am not a clinician. I am not an expert. I am a pastor. And so I want to lead you and shepherd you in a place where you might be experiencing this. And so first of all, what I want to do is I want to give you some myths about depression, anxiety, some myths that we uh, have experienced, that we believe in in the church sometimes, that some people believe in the church, or maybe you have been told in the church. The first myth is this, that if you're experiencing mental health issues or problems, anxiety, depression, or anything, it is always a result of personal sin. That is a myth. It is always a result of personal sin. Some people might say that you might be depressed because there is sin in your life. And if you repent of that sin and find freedom from that sin, then you won't experience the emotions tied with the sin. And so it becomes a spiritual dynamic that you repent of the sin. Can personal sin cause depression? Absolutely. At the same time, 
Someone's sin against you can cause depression. Someone's abuse against you or trauma that you experience from someone else's sin. So a myth is that it is always the result of personal sin. Myth number two, people might say in the church, it's always a spiritual matter. So if you address the spiritual side of you, then you're going to find freedom in the areas of mental health. And so someone might say, well, pray harder, read your Bible more, join a small group, all right? Do, basically, do more Christian things, and you're going to find freedom in this area. Now, on the other hand, some people might say this. That is always a physical matter. It is always a physical matter. It's chemical. It's in the brain. So if you adjust the chemicals, and depression will go away, or anxiety will go away. You go to the doctor, you get the medication, and everything is good to go. So what's the truth? Well, first of all, let me say this, is that me even talking about mental health is dipping my toes into muddy water, all right? It's, we are a people that like black and white. We like right and wrong. We, we have a hard time living in the tension in between, right? And now more than ever, we see that left and right, all right? We, we see that more than ever in our society today. So we are entering muddy waters that is somewhat murky, and I think the church is actually doing better than it's ever done with addressing and talking about mental health. You see, if we say it's purely a spiritual issue, then we pray it away. If we say it's a physical issue, then we medicate it away. Here, here's what I know. Here's what I want to start with. Is that the, the, the Bible teaches us through systematic theology, we understand this, is that the human is made up of three different parts. It's called tripartite theology. That you are a body, that you are a soul, and that you are a spirit. That you as a human are made up of three parts, a body, a soul, and the spirit. Now the body is the physical part of you. It's the part that you can touch and that you can taste and that you can, you can smell. It's the part uh, that, that you can feel when someone pokes you. It's the part that the medical professionals would examine you. It is the, 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 the biology of who you are. It is the blood in your body. It is the bones. It, it is the oxygen uh, inside of you. It is the physical, uh, biological part of you, that you are a body. Now, what is a soul? The soul in the scripture is often referred to as the emotional side of you or the intellectual side of you, the part where there is reason, the part where there is feelings, the, the, the part that you would say is, uh, is who you are on the inside. Now, here's what's interesting. When you read through Scripture, you wouldn't know this unless you studied the original languages. But in the Old Testament, oftentimes when you see the word heart, the Hebrew word is the word bowels or gut. And so uh, in, in Hebrew, it was that guttural, deep feeling inside. By the time you get to the New Testament, it actually uses the word heart for that, your physical heart for the seat of your emotions. And, and then it turns into also talking about 
your mind, but I think it's all saying the same thing, that there is a part of you that experiences deep emotions, feelings inside your consciousness. Uh, All those parts would be considered your soul. The last thing is your spirit. What is your spirit? The spirit is the part of you that interacts with God. The spirit is the part of you where we might say is the image of God within you. In Genesis uh, chapter 126, it says that we are created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And so God created you with the capacity to interact with him. Are you with me? And so he created you to hear his voice. That's why we believe as followers of Jesus, we can hear God's voice. We can experience God's presence. This is the part of you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that moment you received him, where just the light bulb clicked on and your heart started racing or those experience, an emotional part of you, where you feel the presence of God. Maybe you've been in a time of worship where you feel and sense and experience the presence of God. That's the spirit side of you. Now, where am I going with this? We would love to say that each one of these is a separate, disconnected part of who you are. You've got a spirit side of you, a soul side of you, and a body side of you. But the reality of that isn't the truth. That your body and your spirit and your soul are interwoven and interconnected with one another. They are not separate from each other. They are so ingrained. And so the things in your soul can affect your body. And the things in your body can affect your soul. Are you following me? And so they're interconnected. So to say, let's just address this physical or let's just address the spiritual would not line up with this interconnected, interwoven, uh, tripartite theology of what man and women are made of. See, the reality is this is that every part of who we are is interconnected. Every fiber of your being is interconnected, spirit, soul, and body. But this is what we understand, that we are first and foremost spiritual beings designed to live forever. We are spiritual beings designed to live forever. And we are created beings that are subjected to a broken world. I want to read for you in Romans chapter 8. I've preached out of this a few times over the last couple years. I think it's an important passage for us understanding what we experience on earth as we wait for Jesus to return for a second time. Romans 8.20 says this, For the creation, it's talking about the created world, was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It says this, the creation was subjected to frustration. Sometimes we experience what we experience simply because we live in a frustrated world. Now, let me explain what this actually means. A lot of times when we talk about sin, we always think about the personal side of sin, the right and wrong, that I lied, I cheated, I stole, I broke one of the Ten Commandments. But did you know that sin is much bigger than that? Sin is the pervasiveness of the disruption of peace in the whole world. 
And so the world we live in itself is subjected to a broken, dysfunctional system of sin. And so the world is frustrated. And it's interesting because it goes on to say this, that the world is groaning as a woman in childbirth with labor pains for the redemption of the sons of God, for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, let me explain this to you. It's like the world creation itself, the mountains, the trees, the sky, everything you see in creation is waiting for God to redeem humanity. Why is that? And it's groaning. And it's groaning. Could the groaning perhaps be the weather patterns that we experience that destroy? The earthquakes and the volcanoes and the tornadoes and the floods and the, the earth is frustrated. And it's groaning and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Why is that? Creation knows this. As humanity goes, so goes the earth. Did you know that the Bible in Revelation 22, it says that, that God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth? All right, there's going to be a restoration of the earth that we live in. And so it goes on to say this, that just like creation is groaning, it says we are groaning. We are groaning in anticipation for the return of Jesus and the redemption of our bodies. And so I want to say is our groaning some of those deep emotional feelings that we have? Is some of the things we experience in the pit, the groaning for God to move or the groaning for God to return? Could it be that what we experience is part of us groaning and anticipating the redemption that God is going to do in our own bodies? You see, the default line for every human is this inward groaning. The thing is, us as followers of Jesus, we know what we're groaning for. We're groaning for a new body someday. Some of you say amen. <laughs> we're groaning for to experience eternity with Jesus, to experience a release of the emotions that we have that are uh, not from God, but they're simply because we live in a frustrated and broken world. What if the things that you're experiencing emotionally, mentally, were the inward groaning for God to move and to return? I want to talk now and I want to finish our time with overcoming the pit. So what, where do we go from here? I was talking with um, someone the other day from our church. We were talking about mental health and she does a lot in this biblical pastoral counseling world. And, you know, I was talking about mental health. I said, the problem is a lot of times we don't address it in the church because you don't want to open things up and not be able to find people find healing. So you don't want to just kind of open wounds and allow things to happen. So what do we do? How do we overcome the pit? Well, first of all, I would say this. Sometimes when we talk about freedom, we think freedom from something is purely freedom from the struggle and that we'll never have to face it again. There, there's this um, idea in, uh, there, there's three different views in the church in regards to this. I'm going to use some theological language with you. Is that okay? There's this idea 
Uh, it's called overrealized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times when Jesus is going to return. Overrealized eschatology is this idea that we invite heaven on earth and we can live with heaven on earth now. Like this idea that we get all access of heaven here. And so someone who would believe in overrealized eschatology believe that you should be healed. No matter what you're facing, you should be healed. And the problem becomes is that when you're not healed, people often say, well, there's sin in your life, or you're not praying hard enough, or you don't have enough faith. There's an underrealized eschatology, and that is the belief that, well, there's none of heaven here right now, that we're just subjected to a broken, frustrated world. The reality is what we believe is that we believe in an inaugurated eschatology. And that is this, that when Jesus came to earth, in fact, he inaugurated the end times when he preached his sermon, what we talked about last week, Luke chapter 4, is that the kingdom of God has been unfolding ever since that time. And we are slowly and slowly getting closer to the full revelation of who Jesus is. And so some people might say this is why we live in the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God now, but it's not yet fully realized. This is why some people get healed and some people don't. This, this is, we live in this world, this place that's in between the first and second advents, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We live at this place in between. So what I want to say about freedom is sometimes when we use the word freedom, sometimes we think you're never going to experience it again. What if freedom on earth wasn't always a victory from the struggle, but freedom was knowing that you have a struggle, working through it, and knowing that the struggle is part of your narrative and part of your story. What if the struggle you're facing is the inward groaning to have Jesus return? Sometimes depression, anxiety is not a problem to be solved, but it's a tension to be managed. Do I think that you can have greater levels of freedom? Absolutely. Absolutely. But with this particular issue, we have to understand it's a process. It's a process. By the way, if you are experiencing this, there should not be any shame or, uh, or guilt attached to or embarrassment of our struggle. Do you know some of the greatest figures of faith struggled with depression? C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon. Most senior pastors I know have gone through seasons of depression in their life. All right, and I'm not just talking about the Sunday afternoon blues or the Monday morning blues. Every preaching pastor I know gets up Monday morning and they're depressed, all right? That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about seasons, you know, several months at a time. It is something that we don't often talk about and most people don't want to confess because we want to pretend like we have it all together. But did you know that even King David experienced depression? Let me read in uh, Psalm 45, 43. It says this, why my soul are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Remember the soul is the emotional side of you. Why? What's he saying? Can I give a modern translation? Why am I so depressed? Why do I feel so conflicted? And he says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Do you know that David understands that he's not finding freedom from the pit or this place of depression in a moment. But he's saying, even though I have the struggle, I'm going to keep praising God. 
and I'm going to allow him to work in me through the struggle. So let me give you three things to end our time in overcoming the pit. Three things. The first one is this. Tell somebody. <laughs> Tell somebody. Tell somebody. You know, at our church, we like to say this, and it isn't just a catchy phrase. It's what we truly believe in, that at our church, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's difficult to express how you really feel in the church because sometimes we have to pretend like we need to have everything together. But by, by the way, we're a product of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s where you come to church and you bring your family and you've got to look like you have it all together. All right? As a pastor, I see people that look like they have it all together. And then a few months later, they're in my office. We're going through a divorce. We're doing this. He's cheated on me, all this. And you realize, no, 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 you don't have it together. You just pretended like you had it all together. And in our church, it's okay to not be okay. It's interesting because when we don't allow authenticity and space for people to struggle, it's like using air fresheners. I hate air fresheners. I don't like them. Sometimes... They even make me sick to my stomach. I don't know why. But air fresheners never take away the scent. You realize that, all right? Even if it says the Febreze, it absorbs odor. What? Come on, nothing can absorb odor. What does it do? It covers it up. Sometimes in church, we're really good at covering things up. Part of what I've tried to do in front of you, church, in the last several years is to live like an open book, and to share some of the struggles that I've had, even in this area, specifically with anxiety, the thing to do is to tell somebody. Second thing is this. By the way, these are just like first steps to, to start, is to get help, is to get help. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. God wants to help us. God wants to heal us. And so how do we get help? Three things. The first one is this, is get prayer. I love what James says. He says this, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of pray, praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. What do we do? We pray. We pray for God's healing power in our lives. We pray with faith. We believe God will heal, but we also pray that God helps us through the journey and through the process. And sometimes we know that the healing process isn't instantaneous. And especially with the emotions that we're talking about today, sometimes it's the process in which you find the healing. And it's not just, hey, say a prayer and let's get healed. The second thing is this, is counseling. You know, I think maybe eight or nine years ago, I probably because of an insecurity, I didn't really believe in good counseling. Now my wife's becoming a counselor, by the way. She's in graduate school. So I get a ton of free counseling. <laughs> you can see why I keep getting emotionally healthier the longer I'm married, all right? Um, but I think it was birthed out of an insecurity because the reality is, is that I had things in my own life that only became unpacked in me when I met with someone who could 
counsel me, and I meet with a spiritual director. Some of you hear me say that, and when I say that, the spiritual director is not a guru, like, he's like a pastor who went to school for counseling, but he's also trained in spiritual direction, which is to point you to Jesus. And I want to tell you, I found tremendous help and healing in my own soul through the process of working through things with someone I can trust. The last one is medication. I'm going to put a question mark. Sometimes people think medication is a moral issue. Medication is not a moral issue. Medication is a wisdom issue. Are you with me? It's interesting because some people would say, well, don't medicate. Just trust in God. You know, the problem with people that say this is I guarantee when they go to the dentist, they don't say, I don't want any Novocaine. (laughs) I just want you to drill with no shots, all right? I guarantee this person doesn't just, like, not take Tylenol when they have a headache, all right? Now, I know this is why it's muddy waters, because you're dealing with the brain, you're dealing with chemicals, you're dealing with the neurons, you're dealing with a lot. But it's, I just want to let you know it's not a moral issue, it's a wisdom issue. And the last one I want to end with is I want you to know is to know your value, to know your value, to know how much God loves you and how much God cares about you. When God created us, you know, he didn't need us. A lot of religions believe that in the beginning that the gods created humans so that they could work for the gods and they would be under them. Nothing in the Hebrew scriptures tell us that God created us so that that we would work for him, that we we would be um, just slaves of him. God created us not because he needed us. God created us because he wanted us. Because he chose us. Because he decided, I want you. Insert your name in that equation. I want you. I created you because I want a relationship with you. And he sees each one of us as his son and his daughter. God cares about your life. He cares about your body, your soul, and your spirit. He cares about you physically, spiritually, and emotionally. God cares about the whole package. He created you because he wanted you and he wants to spend time with you. And he wants to be with you in the pit. He wants to walk with you in the struggle. Even though I walk through the the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. He wants to be with you. In fact, the value he placed on your life is so great that he sent his own son to die and sacrifice his life for you. To give up everything for you because you were worth it. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and I just want to give you an opportunity to respond today just to simply say, you know what, I'm not okay. There's things that I'm going through. There's things that I'm struggling with. I've I've experienced these emotions. I'm experiencing them now, anxiety, depression. And I want to give you an opportunity just to respond to Jesus this morning. And that maybe today is the beginning of a journey of a process 
to find freedom in the areas of your life that you didn't think were possible. So I just wanna encourage you, if you're here today with every head bowed and every eye closed, and you're here today and you say, you know what, Aaron, this is something I'm facing. I have anxiety that I've been facing or I've been facing depression. If that's you, I just want you to simply lift your hand right now. Amen, I see your hand. I see your hands all over. You can put your hands down. I want you to look up at me for a moment. I wanna read something to you. You know that some of the most precious Psalms in scripture are written for the brokenhearted. They're written for the hurting, to give you hope while you're in the pit. I just wanna read a few of them today and we're gonna sing this song. One of my favorites is Psalm 139, 13 through 18, where David writes this, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in that secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. What is David saying? God, you've got more good thoughts of me than I could ever count. And the last one is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Listen, in the scripture, sometimes God doesn't always rescue us from the valleys, but he walks us hand in hand in the valley seasons of our life. Let me pray and then we're gonna sing this song. Father, thank you for this time. God, thank you for giving us strength, Lord. I pray for your healing power this morning on those who lifted their hands. I pray that your spirit would be in us, God, that we would understand the struggle, Lord, and that you would begin to bring healing, bring comfort, bring peace in our very own lives. Jesus, I pray in each one of us, God, that we would experience the joy, the life, the freedom of what it means to live in you and to be with you. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.